in the obviously I told you about the the um, the bad stuff, but there's so much good as well happening. I know of the people who refused to leave and stayed behind, the young, the you know, the youthful, the strong, who opted to just you know bear the bullets, so they can run around neighborhoods, providing you know life-saving services. I called some friends on the day I was leaving, alarmed because I had heard that they they refused to leave, and all my urges um, to kind of you know get them to move would not shake them. Their only response was, "I'm sure there's something better we can do here." Mm. Salam and hello everyone. My name is Lily Bakella Piper, and as always, I am so glad that you've tuned in today. Today we are talking about Sudan, beloved Sudan, Sudan Habibi, as we've called this episode. Since April 15th, our hearts have been broken to see all that is happening at this country just around the corner from Kenya. As of today, I'm recording this on May 18th. Over a thousand people have lost their lives in this conflict and tens of thousands of other people have escaped, have fled into neighboring Chad or into Egypt or Ethiopia or Kenya even to escape what is happening at home. The conflict between the Sudanese armed forces and the rapid support forces have forced Sudan and Sudan's people to once again wrestle with not only this moment time, but the history and the futures of what they want for their country. You know, I am not a, a journalist by training. I really consider myself a storyteller. And we have been thinking about on the show what we can do to honor this moment, how to honor the Sudanese people, how to think about and engage with the stories that we're hearing. And one way we felt like we could do that was to give space to Sudanese nationals to tell us what Sudan means to them to tell us about their Sudan. The Sudan that we're not seeing in the headlines, the Sudan that we're not seeing in you know, the, the breaking news updates that are coming through our inboxes, but the Sudan that raised them, the Sudan that is home, the Sudan that they hope for in the future. I'm really grateful for my friend Haben for bringing this idea to my attention and really asking me to spend some time talking about Sudan. And for her friend, Jahan, who reached into her network to connect me with Sudanese individuals who would be willing to share their story. So today on the show, you're going to hear from Mohammed, Elher, and Raga, who are all Sudanese nationals, all in the diaspora, but all deeply rooted in home, who have deep ties in the country and who have stories to share about the Sudan they know, the Sudan they love, the Sudanese people and their culture that they know that we also would benefit from knowing better. I think one of the things that I wrestle with often is how do we talk about conflict in a way that doesn't reinforce narratives about our Africa, about our home, in a way that Western media has forever? How do I take responsibility for a home in a way that is thorough and balanced and fair but also tender and kind and joyful. Because at Salam and Hello, we really do try and focus on both the justice and the joy in every story that we bring to you. 
So I feel like through these three individuals, you're going to hear both a cry for justice for the Sudanese people and also stories of joy, of resilience, and of hope. I think I also want to just acknowledge and take a moment to say that as an Ethiopian, it's not lost on me that I haven't done an episode on Ethiopia and the war at home. I haven't wrestled publicly with all the feelings that we have felt as Ethiopian nationals um, the last few years, or even at this moment where we are praying that peace holds, that you know, infrastructure is restored, that humanitarian aid gets where it needs to go, that families are reunited. And I have been scared to do that. It feels so vulnerable to talk about home, to talk about the politics, to talk about different ethnic groups, what it means to abdicate power, what it means to sacrifice for the betterment of your family and, your, and the good of the nation. It is not an easy conversation to have. And hearing the voices today from uh, Raga, from Elher, from Mohammed, they gave me courage to try and think about how do I also talk about Ethiopia? So I hope in the coming months, I can find a way to have that conversation with you. But till then, let me just say to the Habesha community that it's not lost on me and it's on my mind. And let me say to our Sudanese brothers and sisters, how much we stand in solidarity with you at this moment. We stand in hope for a better future, for the future that Sudanese people in Sudan deserves as one of my guests, Mohammed, so beautifully said you know, Sudan deserves better. And I think the stories you'll hear from today from our guests will really move you in a way that I think the headlines just can't because they're deeply rooted in their personal experiences and they have so much to offer us. And I'm just so grateful that they're here to teach us um, how to have pride in our home, even when our home, you know, is not an easy place to be. So thank you for listening today, listeners. I hope you will take so much from what you're about to hear, this conversation about Sudan Habibi. So good evening, Raga. I am so grateful that you are with us today and able to join in the conversation. And let me just start by asking you to introduce yourself to our listeners, to tell us your name, where you are right now, and where you are from. Um, okay. Um, hello, and thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Uh, my name is Raja Makawi. I am um, British Sudanese. At the moment, I live in Oxford, England, where I'm pursuing a degree. I, uh, like many Sudanese who were um, um, born in the uh, 80s and 70s, I, I was born in the Gulf, you know, part of that kind of migration for labor uh, wave. Um, I lived with my parents in the Gulf until... Um, the Gulf War broke out in the early 90s, and then I returned to Sudan. I only left Sudan in, in 2015, which means that I've lived, lived the bulk of my life in, in Khartoum. So that's, um, that's where I'm from. That's also a bit of a background. Thank you so, so much for that. So, you know, tell me what Sudan means to you. You've given us a, a bit of your story about Khartoum being home and and only being now in the UK for, for studies. So tell me, what does what is your Sudan? Tell me about your Sudan. Oh my gosh, that's such a loaded question. I don't know if I'm able to kind of express it in words, even though, you know, emotionally, it kind of weighs down on me, not in a bad way. And obviously after the war, 
you know, all these emotions um, kind of, you know, rush over me and provide me with a sense of both, obviously, belonging, but also the... Um, um the heartbreak of losing something so substantial so it's that double-edged sword of having something but also losing it mm. um I don't know I mean I guess the most you know easiest and closest description is to say that maybe Sudan is home Sudan is family but you know beyond that and beneath that there's such a complex kind of you know um waved you know um thing that's both imagined and realistic that uh, makes makes you know what makes makes me what i am and makes sudan what it is um i've lived in england for 10 years and i have thankfully made friends here. I've made friends who are almost family. I've made a life for myself. I've made a career. I have grown into myself. I've become, you know, an, a strong, independent woman. But it all means nothing if I don't contrast it in relation to everything that I've come from, from Sudan. And despite all the difficulties of having, you know, to kind of chart this path for myself in England, without that sense of, you know, grounded continuity that I have in the background that's related to Sudan. I always, I always know that I have a place to go to. Then when, li when life becomes a little bit too much, I can just go home and knock the door and, you know, be with my parents and be with my friends. And so this is, this is what Sudan is. Sudan is an extension of my being that is, that is both not just an identity that I have to describe or explain, it's also um, a hiding space, a comfort zone. Um, so, I mean, yeah, it's, it's difficult yeah. to explain what Sudan is to me at this very particular moment, but it feels like a huge loss. And this, you know, kind of nagging urge of return, even so early, 34 days after the war, um, it consumes me. Mm. And... I mean, as someone also who works in this in a sector that you know studies conflict and being you know a close kind of witness to how these things usually go down, I know in my heart that this is not how it works. That return isn't that easy. It's even when return happens, this imagined idea in my head of what Sudan once was will probably will not continue to be. So you know, I grapple with all grapple with all these kind of you know conflicting and contesting ideas of what Sudan means to me and um yeah it's it's, it's a struggle but you you've put it to words in a way I think that's quite profound this idea that it can be both a hiding space for you both roots and wings both mm -hmm. your identity and also the place that you know you hope to return to so you know we in this moment where this war is raging I'm struck by the fact that you said 34 days you're, you're counting the days. Well, we're counting, not just me. So this, come, this, this also extended sense of Sudan we carry, not just in our memories, but also in our conversations. We are an extended network of 
family and friends and acquaintances, we're all, we're all, we have all been displaced. And the one urgent common thing between us is talking about Sudan. And this includes, you know, daily reviews and checkups and, um, and conversations, right? I mean, we, when it comes to kind of following up on Sudan, it's not in terms of days, it's in terms of minutes. So mm. what happens between every minute and the other kind of, you know, is kind of defines our new reality, our relationship to Sudan. Between one moment and another, a new person gets displaced. How can mm. we help them? Between one moment or another, someone has a breakdown. How can we aid them? Between one moment or another, like someone's house has been bombed. Um, so it's this... Um, Again, I mean, you probably know this when people talk about war, it's this kind of, you know, general sense of destruction. But when you're the one who's, you know, being assaulted or affected by war, it's these, you know, particularities, you know, the, de the devil is in the detail. Mm -hmm. You know, the destruction is felt at every level because you, you come to know through experience what it means and what the difference is between death as a result of a stray bullet or death because you were targeted for some reason. Death also becomes, it's not this kind of, you know, blanket term of loss. There's all these kind of particularities, reason, rhyme, you know, place, circumstances, so yes, it's counted, not just the days, but everything, every activity, every, you know, um, every particularity is, is, is counted. You know, I, it's, it's not lost on me that for, for those of us who are not Sudanese, even if we're here on the ground, the, the news can feel like a headline, it could feel like an update you know, like what's happening today, what, what what changes there were, but for somebody whose heart is there, it is a moment to moment. And, and you know, Raghav, just for you, how are you managing that day-to-day, -day, that moment to moment, that, you know, in, the in-betweens, the WhatsApp messages, the in-between, the news that comes in, how are you managing the, this season right now? Um, well, it's... Um... I mean, managing is probably not the word. <laughs> and, um, getting on with it best as I could. And uh, we have a saying in Sudan. I think it's more profound in, 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 in you know, in local kind of, you know, uh, colloquial, but... Yeah, please share it. Uh, sure, it says, uh, And it basically means that whatever the, uh, whatever the sky throws at you, whatever comes from the sky, the ground will hold it has no other option right I mean there's no other there's no way out of it there's no other kind of you know yeah. solution yeah mm. so but obviously I mean um managing a crisis also has its kind of you know complex kind of um, means and ways and and there are things that drag you down but also there are higher callings that pull you up and in my particular case, it's this, you know, urge to rejoin my family, even though we were all displaced. Um, when when the war broke out, thankfully, me and them, me and my parent, my elderly parents were able to escape to Cairo. 
and I managed to stay with them for about a week but then I had to come back to the UK so I can you know continue with this degree but also with my work and myself like with a million other Sudanese um the kind of very kind of social and economic structure has been kind of you know uprooted so um now well whilst I was always you know uh, dependent on my parents now they are dependent on me as I imagine is the case with a lot of families and so now uh, my separation from them and their separation from Sudan is kind of you know um defined by then you know by the needs to be able to you know their need for security and my need to be able to provide for them so those are new realities you know that I have to manage and they also manage me <laughs> they dictate to a large degree in my life so whilst it kind of makes me feel wretched to be torn from them at the same time it gives me a sense of solace to be able to have this opportunity that maybe many others don't have to be able to provide for them. So it's this kind of, you know, complex hmm. situation where you do what you have to do in, in order to be able to, you know, to, to push forward. Yeah. So Raga, I know it's very recent and it's very real. Um, could you share a little bit about your journey out of Khartoum and into Cairo and just what that felt like for you and for your family? Yeah, I mean, it was a really difficult, arduous trip, mostly because we were all kind of moving in space and time with very little understanding or assurance of what will happen from one moment to the next. Um, in my case, like with a lot of other Sudanese families, I imagine, people turned north, obviously because of their kind of, you know, historic relationships, with, relationship with Egypt, but also because the road allows it. Right. Proximity of Khartoum to the Egyptian border, but also the fact that that's a, you know, that's a, a route that is, you know, quite frequently taken. And so like a lot of Sudanese people, we, we opted for that option. Uh, the difficulty of being able to leave Khartoum because of the security situation and because of the scarcity of transport or willing drivers and you know the, uh, the fact that the black market had taken over. It was impossible to get service of any kind. Um, fuel was impossible to find because you know it was a, com a commodity upon which both warring parties dependent in order to you know to be able to kind of launch their assaults uh, but also both both parties forgot that in a country like, country like Sudan is dependent on fuel to be able to for people to be able to eat food right the the, the food value yes. the food chains are dependent on you know um uh, trucks moving in between borders whether it was with Egypt Ethiopia or whatever to kind of bring food into uh, into Khartoum and so um we were able to eventually navigate all these difficulties and find at an like an exorbitant amount uh, a bus that was willing to take my family my brother's family and a few friends with their with their children and elderly to to the Egyptian border 
and um, we left uh, midday and arrived at Ergin um, about 15 hours later. Uh, unfortunately, we were held at the border for another five days. It was a very difficult, inhumane experience that probably keeps me up at night. Mm-hmm. Not just, I mean, obviously you always expect, especially under a situation of war, you do expect authorities to behave in the worst way possible. You do expect authorities to kind of, you know, uh, weigh down on you in the most kind of um, awful of ways. But unfortunately, the war also um, and crises have a way of maybe uh, bringing out the worst in people. So um, we saw on, on our way and at the border, the emergence of you know traders in crisis of every kind you can imagine. People who were making you know, profits, turning a profit out of the suffering of people, um, selling water at you know, 10 times its price, despite the fact that the, 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 you know, the border was crawling with young children who were thirsty, um, food that was scarce and you know, difficult to share, um, a people, a nation that was stuck together at the border, trying to escape, but at the same time, some people were able to put, to buy their way out while others were stuck. And obviously, mm-hmm. I don't blame you know the human nature that kind of strives to save itself. But I I am bothered by you know what I saw on the way and at the border and yeah. Yeah. Thank you for, for sharing that with us. I know, as you said, it keeps you up at night. So just thank you for, for sharing it with us. Is Has that experience and, and that process for you, do you feel like it's changed your relationship to Sudan? Well, I mean, in, in a sense, probably yes, but not to the worst. I mean, I don't walk around thinking it's any level or any kind of, in any sense, that I am done with Sudan, or that it's just easier for me to kind of leave and cut all ties and start new somewhere else. Um, In fact, I'm just thinking with a lot of people who have witnessed the same about how to address these issues. How can we come back from this as a people, you know, stronger, better? How can we learn from our mistakes? Um, I'm also guided in this by you know, the news that I hear from back home. I mean, obviously I told you about the the um, the bad stuff, but there's so much good as well happening. I know of the people who refused to leave and stayed behind, the young, the, you know, the youthful, the strong, who opted to just, you know, bear the bullets so they can run around neighborhoods providing, you know, life-saving services. I called some friends on the day I was leaving alarmed because I had heard that they they refused to leave and all my urges um, to kind of, you know, get them to move would not shake them. Their only response was, I'm sure there's something better we can do here. Mm. Um, 
So, I mean, my, uh, despite everything and because of everything, like so many people, my relationship with Sudan is one of, you know, hate love, but hate is more the kind of, you know, um, it's, 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 it's like, a, you know, very kind of deep connected relationship to a, um, to a partner or a parent where you can't, you know, where they drive you insane, but also at the same time, you can't sever that relationship. Just yeah. all, the, all the violence or the, all the difficulty draws you in more. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Yeah. We've heard those stories too. And I think the stories of, yeah, you know, Sudanese people, like you said, providing the services that the country needs at this time where everybody else has either departed, everyone has been, you know, all the foreign international organizations have evacuated their staff. It is the Sudanese people who have risen up to care and and nurture and just, yeah, cradle their country during this moment. And we've heard those stories. So, you know, when you think about the future of Sudan, you know, especially like you said, holding in the truth that there's also this beautiful piece of who the Sudanese people are, you know, what are your hopes for the future of Sudan? Mm -hmm. That we as Sudanese, we will, first of all, we will all have the chance to return. That return, you know, sooner rather than later will be a reality. And that's once we return, we don't all just return to kind of reoccupy the same spaces. We return to be to you know to kind of dislodge, you know, all these kind of systems of cruelty and injustice, and that we have we ourselves have contributed to. Mm. Um, I, I I see the you know the possibility. I mean, the thing is, again, this is like human trajectory is is no joke. It's a deepening process that is only achieved through, you know, blood and tears and, at, you know, at great cost. And this, I mean, when I think of this moment of war, I can think of it um, in separation from the previous five years that got us to this point, you know, um, the exhilarating moments of, you know, revolution that uh, kind of, you know, um, try to kind of, you know, shake the very core of um, the autocratic system that has come to define mm. Sudan since its independence. And that must have not been easy, right? And, you know, these processes of change, if they were achieved so easily, we wouldn't be living in the world that we, lived in, we live in today. So somehow, even this kind of conflict, I see it as just another step in a path towards you know, um, uh, transforming what it is, to, you know, to be Sudanese, to live as Sudanese, to occupy Sudan. And um, so, yeah, I'm hoping, yeah. I'm hoping it's a good future. Yeah. You're right. You're so right. And, and what you said, I think is so, so important for us to remember that there's freedom is not free. And so, it's not fair that the price is often paid by those who have the least or those on the margins or those who had no, you know, as they say, dog in this fight, they pay the price and yet it is a step forward. And that's the truth that we know and also the evidence that we're seeing on the ground from the stories that we're hearing from people and how they're caring for one another. Um, 
as we kind of just wrap our conversation, I think I'd love to know for you, you know, what are the stories that you want to be passed down, you know, in five or 10 years when we reflect on this moment and this moment now becomes history? What do you want the retelling of this moment to be? Well, I mean, I want um, I, I want the lies of, you know, um, the establishment to be exposed, whether it was, you know, this 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 ideal lie of, you know, civilian um to be exposed as well as military obviously mm-hmm. and when people talk in terms of war all focus is on armed actors but it's it's not just them they also have enablers sudan has a long history of you know a very tight-knit political establishment that has pushed the public into sorry into in, to the fringes have taken away the right to practice politics, to, you know, assert their political rights. Um, And what I want is for all these lies, you know, to be exposed, for all this kind of, you know, fake reverence to men of power or women of power, just because they have power to be, to be, to, to end. And I want in their place, in their, you know, um, instead of you know this this history that we've been handed down of mm. a handful of you know men and women for the history of the sudanese people uh, the real history you know the um, the everyday difficult mundane details um, of people just struggling to get through ethically and in the process building a better sudan i want that history to be you know the history of sudan Mm. Uh, I want these stories to be passed on, just as, like the one that I just told you about this young man of 29 who refused to leave and said that there's something better for me to do here, I'm sure, of people who sit online on the internet 24-7 just to pass on information of needs and, you know, kind of facilitate ways of, um, uh, you know, procuring pro- procuring these needs for the public. Um, I want this. I want the story of everyday, you know, people, and their kind of, you know, um, voice, and the way by which they try to survive this, uh, to be the stories and the history of Sudan that's passed on ten years, ten years from now, and um, and told. I don't want Sudan's story to be one of a reconciliation or negotiation kind of, you know, an agreement kind of, you know, tethered together very delicately. And that's the thing that ended Sudan's war and then Sudan fades from the news. Um, I'm hoping that, you know, um, the history of the people would become this kind of, you know, new narrative that is, and distributed not just locally but you know internationally also as an example of you know how a nation a people can save itself rather mm-hmm. than rely on yeah absolutely you've been so generous with your time today um is there you know of the questions I asked surely I didn't ask enough so 
Is there anything you'd want to add to, from the questions I didn't ask <laughs> that you think is important for, for people who are listening to this conversation to understand either about Sudan, its people, its history that you'd like to add? Yeah, I mean, first of all, thank you so much for also coming at it from this unique kind of angle. We, um, yeah, we get kind of lost in the political details and people's history, again, gets, gets lost in translation. Um, so thank you for doing that. Um, I'm sorry if I kind of mumbled on. Obviously, it's a bit difficult no. to kind of you know, unpack my feelings. You know, when that's the thing, when you're talking about Sudan, you know, on in political terms, you know, and as an expert, it's easy to have like, you know, like ready-made sentences you can communicate right. with, you know, preciseness. But I've I've never been in a situation where someone has asked me to talk about my feelings and of what I expect of Sudan in the future. So even though I've come across as I feel that I've come across as a bit, you know, mumbling, but at the same time, thank you for giving me this opportunity to kind of offload emotionally and kind of, you know, um try and narrate Sudan in a different kind of imaginary. One of like I said, the heart, the emotions um so yeah thank you <laughs> no thank you we I am so grateful you know I think we feel oftentimes so helpless in these moments and I, I really believe that wherever we are we all have something we can give and so you know at least for us at Salam and Hello this was our one way of trying to hold space for the Sudanese people you know our brothers and sisters you know we, we are truly these borders are false ones and so we feel such a solidarity with you and and even though we've never met you know I feel you're mine and your story is mine and some dear Sudanese friends here you know one thing I love about them is they are always full of gratitude um, as you said earlier the sky will the ground will hold what the sky delivers and so they have a constant attitude of you know alhamdulillah and you know all is well even though so I always like to close my conversations by asking my guests, you know, what is bringing you joy? And I know this is not an easy moment and your family has endured quite a bit, but I know I would be remiss if I did not ask um, someone who comes from such a rich culture of faith and of gratitude, you know, what is bringing you joy today, despite everything? Well, I guess maybe the hope, um, not just that, you know, I'll go back to Sudan, but that I'll be reunited with, you know, family and and friends. You know, this this um the sense of being reunited happens, you know, at every at every day at so many levels. And it mm. gives you a fleeting moment of joy before, you know, kind of anger and um hopelessness somehow kind of washes again over you. You know, joy is in the kind of, you know, intricate moments of um, sending, someone sending you like a, a strong worded, let's say, Facebook, you know, post, something that communicates my feeling and a, feel, a feeling of 100,000 others. Or when, um, new, when, when we get news about someone who was lost, like a, a, a woman who was looking for her missing husband or her kidnapped husband, and he surfaces unharmed. So there's this collective sense now of um, kind of, you know, float or sink. And whenever we hear news, good news of any sort um, from, uh, I mean, people who I've, I've never even met, who I wouldn't know from, you know, um, Adam or Eve, if, if I met them on the streets, their joy is now my joy. Mm -hmm. um, so it, 
it, it comes in waves throughout the day and then it fades also as quickly obviously because of the situation um yeah but yeah but mostly um you know the joy of return the hope of 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 return <laughs> well may that hope become truth and reality for you soon um and may joy sustain you until that day comes Salam Mohammed. I'm, I'm so grateful for your time this afternoon. Please, for the sake of our listeners, just tell us, you know, your name, where you are based, and what part of Sudan is home for you. Yes, um, thank you so much for having me. So my name is Mohammed Osman, and I'm based now in Berlin, Germany. Um, I was born in the Gulf, actually, so I was not even born in Sudan, but well, Khartoum has been a home in 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 so many ways, um, but I think very quickly learned through work and travels around that there's so many parts in Sudan I could easily call home. Mm. Tell us about some of those parts. Why why does many parts of Sudan feel like home for you? I mean, it it's really comes to this thing about you know what is a home, right? Without you know making this a big philosophical question, I think there's the fact about how so many regions are just so different and diverse, maybe being raised in a context where the political context at that time was only allowing a singular monotonic version of what the country is. Maybe that was a time when you start to be rebellious against that narrative and trying to kind of break these walls to understand that diversity and to understand there are other things happening. So I think the differences, it actually would allow it to be home um and also you know the different details cultures colors names smells um you know it wasn't all golden it wasn't all like you know pink and rosy there was already suffering and struggles in so many ways but i think throughout the experiences of other people the bonding about you know trying to have a better future for all of us that's probably also part of the ways i defined it as a home Hmm. So both in the physical and in the in the metaphysical, both spiritual and and physical, Sudan Sudan is home in many places. So let's let's you know honor the moment that we're in and and tell me how the current conflict is affecting you and those whom you love. I mean, for so many people, the writings are on the wall. I mean, let's you know even think about my own family. Days you know and weeks you know this tension has been growing between two generals who for years, you know, been cracking down on protesters, made it very clear that they want to extract profits, you know, on the account of the prosperity of Sudanese people. They did not face any consequences for what they have been doing. And, you know, for days and weeks, you know, my family and friends, you know, they're already seeing it happening and they would go to the supermarket and stock, you know, the fridge. And then they come the next day and they're like, oh, maybe it's not going to happen. They're not too stupid to do this. They're not going to destroy the country. And then it happened. And I think and I think for many people after that, you know, it became a different point of no return. Um, people fleeing everywhere. My family had to flee for safety. Um, the way you relate to the whole country now, it's, it's, it's absolutely very different. Hmm. Is your family safe? Where have they found safe passage and, and where have they had the option to go? I mean, yes. I mean, they at the moment are relatively safe up in the north. Um, but just thinking about it, you know, it, it's a small place where there is no proper access to healthcare. You know, if my mom needs an access to 
some specialized medical care that wouldn't be possible. They have to go to another town to get network and to hear the news. Um, so, you know, there's no services. It was already very telling about, you know, there are regions in Sudan were forgotten. You know, they're not developed. They were marginalized. And now they became a safe haven to the people in Khartoum in particular. Um, we were lucky to have the mobility and resources to do this. Um, but for many, actually, that's the thing. Like for many younger people or my generation, you know, they fled to other parts. They fled the country. They went to Egypt, for example, other places. But at the same time, for all the generation, the idea of leaving home, it's it's really, really difficult. Yeah, absolutely. And and how many times, you know, can you leave? I know talking to some Sudanese friends, that's the struggle in talking to their loved ones and their parents is that I already left once, you know, I'm not leaving again. And having those conversations, Mohammed, I just wonder, you know, does, does this current moment where you're watching, you know, loved ones, your mom having to flee, does, does it feel like your relationship to Sudan is changing as a result? I have to say it has been changing over the last years. And I think even my in my current line of work, I mean, I was in Khartoum the last time in October last year, you know, in the same way, every year I come, there's always something happening. There are always hopes, expectations, fears, but now it feels different. I mean, I have, I think a few weeks ago, I was just looking into some pictures on social media and I saw a local market when I used as kids to play around. It's no longer there. Um, when you talk to people, um, they're either on the run or you can hear gunshots on their background. I mean, that's just the whole, it's a, it's, it's a changing experience for people in Khartoum. And as you said, I mean, there are people, especially in places like Balfour, they have been on the move for two decades. So it's a very different story as well. Um, and that's changed the idea of a home. And I think that's also something that we can expect. You know, there, are, there is generation was, you know, people who were born in the last few years They've been experiencing constantly different crises, you know, the, the lack of instability. But between that, I mean, also the question of hope. Hope has been a driving force for these people. Um, it's a bit unfortunate to realize that, you know, voice that was full of hope, you know, diminish over time. Hmm. You mentioned hope, and I think it's important that we do talk about that because, you know, as we think about where we are now, it's, this has not been the only story for Sudan. Uh, it's been too often a story for many of our countries and the communities we love, but it's not the only story. So when you think about Sudan, you know, what are the stories and the hopes that you are holding on to? You know, what are the things that do keep you moving and keep your heart hopeful in this moment? You know, as, as if there is one thing I would say would define a lot of us as Sudanese, and I think, you know, it's also we never really had the moment to create our own story. But if there is one, it's a story of hope. Um, you know, hearing stories from my grandmother, for example, in the 80s and the 70s, when they did not have access to a lot of commodities and they would replace these commodities by something else, you know, they would use dates to replace sugar um, or they would, you know, replace certain kind of foods with others because that was the only available thing. And then you had a new generation who decided to, say like, no, we can't just keep doing that. Let's replace the bad with the good. And that was the moment in 2018, 2019, when this younger generation said, enough, we don't want that. And that was, this was a, huge, a newly moment of hope. You know, all the generation were always pushed back. It's like, ah, you know, dictators exist. You know, they're going to die soon. They better go somewhere else. But they, they said that we can't just keep waiting. We need to mm. start writing our own narrative, our own story. So... Mm. 
it's different now because now we're talking about you know guns are louder than these civilian voices and the struggle now how we still maintain some hope of rewriting the course of history in Sudan. You know, something you said there is really quite powerful about the hope of the 2019 revolution being built on actually the tenacity and the innovation and the way that future previous generations had found a way through that was built on. It's like hope beget hope or courage beget hope or something, you know, courage had a child and that child was hope and that, and this new generation was like, this is, we want something more. So when you think about, you know, what needs to be the stories that need to be told and understood more clearly and the stories that should live on because we will reflect and we will think about this moment in five and 10 years. So I would I would love to hear from you. What is the story that you want people to hold on to that should be remembered? You said something really powerful that the, the bullets sound louder than the voices, but we know that those bullets eventually they're not eternal like the voices can be. So what, what is the story that you think must remain after those bullets die down and, and there's nothing else but our memories? Yeah, I mean, just looking into all these community-led initiatives at the moment, you know, you know, in 2019, you get these resistance committees, protesters, doctors, teachers, lawyers, comes to replace the failure of state in terms of providing services, right? And then after the coup in 2021, it was exactly the same thing. Now they are doing it. They're not only replacing the government, they're replacing the whole international community. They are doing humanitarian assistance, they're promoting safe evacuations. They're doing promotion, how to deal with explosive remnants. So there is there is a story there that is, you know, the tenacity of it. They kept writing it and rewriting it and the consistency. Now under the shells and the guns and the bullets and the fears of the uncertainty that comes with that, you know, people, was, you know, I was talking to people who are staying in hospitals for days to help doctors and healthcare workers to get supplies. You know, they're not doctors, mm -hmm. you know, they're people in their 20s because they simply said, you know, we we will live the consequences if we fail that. So let's take let's be in charge of taking, you know, take charge of what's happening now. And I think, you know, I'm trying, you know, not even to be very pessimistic or optimistic here, but there is a point in terms of maybe kind of tied into the story, what is our story. We never had that chance. We never had that national conversation of like who we are as a nation. You know, the, the secession of South Sudan was a big break. We never really addressed that or never really reflected on it. There are other regions has been constantly marginalized. We need to start having this conversation now. Um, we need to have this narrative. And hopefully, you know, if that's the whole message that after the fog of war diminished, after the war is over, we will be able to rewrite the prospect of a stable, just, fair Sudan. Hmm. That's a powerful statement. May, may it be, Mohammed. I just, you know, as a, as a woman of faith myself, I have to just say yes and amen to that. You know, may that be a just, fair, and stable Sudan for all of, all of her people, you know, all of her people. You know, when you think about um, what I think about Sudanese culture, you know, uh, dear friends here, I, what comes to mind is gratitude that it is a, a constant you know alhamdulillah the, the, we are we remain we have this we don't have this but we have this we have each other there is this constant sense of gratitude where i think it's just so powerful you know when you think about this moment um 
I always like to ask my guests what is bringing them joy today. That's usually how I close my conversations. And it might feel like an awkward question at this time, but I feel like it's so true to Sudanese culture to still find, be able to find gratitude in these moments. So as you have gone day to day and followed the prospects of your country and the safety of your family, you know, what is fueling that and what is giving you joy to keep moving day to day? I mean, it's it's the key word you just said, the gratitude itself. And it's shocking. I mean, sometimes you could feel so much less joy and you are abroad, for example, um, you know, with the day-to-day challenges that we face when you live um, outside of Sudan. And then you talk to people in Sudan, I mean, especially in these times, right? People will be like, well, we have electricity, you know, we do have water. Um, or in, in a sad note, people will be like, well, you know, we are alive or our loved one are alive. And people will be like, well, you know, my house was looted, but, you know, we are okay. So these levels of gratitude exist and they just push people not only to be better, but to be better to each other, right? The stories mm-hmm. about the collectiveness, right? About societies, I mean, villages who barely had anything to survive. I mean, they had kind of the minimum bear of survivability welcome people with open arms you know and from Khartoum it's like yes this is your home do whatever you know our food is your food at the end of the day as much that gives me joy I think I'm just reminded that we deserve better and I think Mm -hmm. everyone realized that we definitely deserve better than that yes you do yes you do you're bringing me to tears Mohammed I'm so touched by that both that the gratitude is a genuine reflection of who people are and a reminder that Sudan des- deserves better. Uh, thank you for reminding us of both. Both are equally important. And I think moments like this remind us to hold both of those in our hands. That's the tension we live with. Um, I've had a set, you know, list of questions. I've been trying to ask each of my guests, you know, a similar set of questions, but I would love to hear from you. What would you want to add to this conversation that I didn't ask you? or ways that you would like to see people responding or engaging in this moment for those who might be listening to this conversation today? I mean, just, you know, as I say, we deserve better. I think the world needs to do better as well. Um, Sudan has been forgotten. The engagement on Sudan has been so much responsible of, you know, sidelining these voices. I mean, I was talking about it earlier. I mean, just did not listen to them. Um, Politics of appeasement, you know, people getting bullied by these two generals with an ego who are really holding the population at the gunpoint, right? So this is what I'm saying, that the world needs to do much better about it. And I think the second thing is that the prospect of Sudanese to have a fairer democratic future um, should be prioritized. And there is so many other stories um, at the same time as this fighting is happening. And the third thing, which is really tied into both, we need to keep the challenges that Sudan is having, you know, and the joy Sudan is having at the center of our attention. These are stories. They're not, people are not numbers, you know, and we can't, we all keep saying 400 kills, 500 kills, 1,000 displaced, but each one has a certain story and I think will be just so important. I mean, having me here, having other people here in this podcast is part of that, you know, kind of vocalizing and visualizing the daily life stories, the experiences of the narrative of Sudanese people. Yeah, absolutely. And we will continue to do that. I hope that maybe we, in a few weeks to months time, we can come back and have another conversation with you and, and see how things have progressed for your family in particular. 
But in the meantime, just know our hearts are with uh, the people of Sudan, with you, with your family. And I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been my privilege and my honor. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Salam I'm so, so privileged and grateful that you would spend some time with us telling us a bit about your story and the story of those that you care so deeply for. So please introduce yourself, tell us, you know, where we're talking to you from and where home is for you. Sure. Um, Salam as well. And thank you for uh, having me here. Um, so uh, it's interesting. I, I did a podcast a few months ago uh, and the question is, where is home? And I tell them that my answer is always the same, Sudan is home. Um, so I am you know, Sudanese American currently based in Doha, Qatar. Um, so it's a pleasure to uh, you know, speak to you guys uh, and thank you so much for having me. Well, let me just start off because Sudan is home. Tell me about your Sudan. You know, what does Sudan mean to you? Sure. Um, I think, the first word that comes to mind when I think of Sudan is its diversity. Um, most people think of Sudan as Khartoum um, or Sudan as the city that they're from, but Sudan is so diverse. I mean, before the separation uh, of the two Sudans, it was the world, I mean, it was the Africa's largest country and top 10 largest land masses in the world. Um, even now, um, with two countries, it's still Africa's third largest uh, country by landmass. Um, and it, it just, it covers so much and has such a diversity in not only its size, but its people, its languages, its customs, uh, its religions, uh, everything. So the first thing that comes to, to mind is, um, is diversity. And I'll add just one more quick point about that. Um, I was fortunate enough to host a, a friend of mine. Um, her name is Jessica Nabongo. She goes by the Catch Me If You Can, if people know who she is. She's the first black woman to have traveled to every yes. single country in the world. So when she came to Sudan, um, I hosted her there um, and with a lot of other friends as well. And I remember taking her you know, back to the airport or the last conversation I had with her. And I said, so you know, what do you think? And she said, you know what? Sudan is probably one of the most diverse countries that I've ever been to. Um, she said, people tell me, oh, you know, it's similar to you know, Ethiopia or other parts of East Africa. And she was like, it's really not. She was like, I would compare it to Brazil. So her, her um, direct comp for Sudan was Brazil because I just remember taking her mm. around and she would be like, well, where's he from? And I was like, oh, you know, Eastern Sudan guy probably looks like he's from Saudi Arabia. I was like, oh, he's from Sudan. And she'd be like, well, where's she from? And she, in, it, to anybody else, you know, someone would, would have said, oh, this woman is West African. I'm like, no, she's Sudanese. Oh, well, what about her? Uh, yeah, no, she's Sudanese. You know, what about him? Sudanese. So she was just like, wow. Um, so yeah, d diverse is Sudan. Mm in a very long-winded way. Mm. No, I, I think the long-windedness is necessary for us to appreciate that rich history and complexity that all of this is couched in. You know, um, you and I were chatting beforehand that Sudan is not a singular story and Sudan's identity, its people, its culture, the way each of its children, each of her children expresses themselves could no, never be a singular expression. And I think it's important for us to continue to remind ourselves of that. 
So let me ask you to bring it down to the to the personal and to bring it to home. You know, how has this current conflict affected your family? Yeah, um, it's a good question. So um, we get asked this question a lot, um, and rightfully so. Um, most people are concerned and are checking in with the Sudanese people they know. Um, so in my case, a lot of my friends and family are, you know, in the U.S. So my immediate family is in the U.S., but um, as you know, with Africans, we don't just consider our immediate family our family. It's our extended family. Uh, and then our extended family, by definition, is also much larger than just first or second cousins. Um, and then, you know, it, it kind of leads itself to the, to, to the next part of the question is, even though, you know, everyone in my family that is re physically related to me, is um, you know currently safe and out of harm's way. It, I you know, I and many other Sudanese consider the whole country our family. Um, so to answer your question, there's a lot of people who are still not safe. There's a lot of people who are suffering. There's people who have died. And there's people who are displaced. So that's just the reality of the entirety of uh, of our families. You know, we were talking, and, and when I first met you through our, our dear friend, Haven, who introduced us, one of the things that struck me about what you said was that, you know, again, pointing to the diversity of, of Sudan, that it's a, a huge country, huge landmass. Your family, I think you told me, was south of Khartoum or, or from Kosti. So tell me about, you know, what a moment like this feels like for families outside of Khartoum and what you're hearing from those stories outside of where most of the reporting is coming out of. Uh, because, yeah. you know, unfortunately our reporting is often limited to these mainstream uh, channels that we can get access to, but we know, again, there's so much more happening and so much of a ripple effect that we need to appreciate better. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. You're right. Um, so my family is from Kosti, which is about four to five hours south of Khartoum, um, used to be kind of the gateway between North and South Sudan. Um, so it was more central, but now it's basically the Southern part of Sudan. Um, so what's happening in, in not only Kosti, but in other cities like you know Medini and other parts of Northern Sudan and Eastern Sudan is that if you're kind of outside of where the main fighting is happening, that's where people have been seeking refuge. So a lot of families um, that have been living in Khartoum and don't have the means to leave the country, i.e. they don't have a secondary passport or residence in another country, or just have the financial means to get to an Egyptian border and pay these insurmountable amount of funds to obtain visas and then pay for yourself to stay uh, in a different country in a non-refugee status. They have been going to other parts of the country. And there's a lot of videos that have come out and it's really kind of shown the generosity of uh, the Sudanese people who are lining up in the streets and handing out food and water and you know hibiscus drinks to travelers who are leaving and in other cases hosting them um, because they are in the outskirts of, of the city but they are you know still Sudanese and um, still you know, still connected um, as one big family. Mm. You know, that 
that leads me to what I what I wanted to know and what I wanted to make sure that our show did was talk about the ways that communities are helping one another. You know, we do not get to hear enough about this this web and this net around these these extended families, including strangers, oftentimes. And you mentioned the ways that communities are already supporting one another. What is that teaching you about Sudan? Just this moment in time and what you're observing, I know you're not there on the ground, but with those deep roots and those connections, what is this current conflict and what are the communities and what you're seeing happening in order to mitigate this conflict? What is that teaching you about Sudan? Um, So it's teaching me uh, some things I already knew, which is like, you know, and this is something I get from people all over the world who happen to know Sudanese people or, 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 or know about Sudan is they always talk about the kindness, the generosity, you know, some, this guy will give you the shirt off of his back, or this woman will give you, you know, a meal to make you feel at home right away. Um, so you see that, you know, you see that um, in moments of crisis and conflict when it's not an act anymore. It's, it's, it's something that's innate. It's something that is just part of the culture. So you do actually, you are seeing some of the goodness that's coming out of this that is just inherently Sudanese um, and helping each other. That's, you know, within the country, outside of the country, um, you know, most of my kind of network, you see them mobilizing online, right? And it's probably the second time the world has kind of witnessed this. The the first time in 2019 with the initial overthrow of Omar al-Bashir, you know, everyone going blue on social media and just, you know, garnering a lot of attention and support that's grassroots and that's to be studied for any other movement happening around the world so I'm very proud of that and now what you see is what another mobilizing effort but it's really people helping their friends and family who are stuck and there's you know you see posts all the time with hey you know my grandmother is home alone can someone go check on her and this is widely being dispersed throughout all social media and there's calls to actions and people are actually coming through so it's happening within Sudan it's happening Mm -hmm. outside of Sudan and you see a lot of Sudanese people doing the work that most NGOs frankly should be doing but you know it's got to be done so the Sudanese people are doing it themselves. That's um, such an important part of the story that we need to know and understand, because I think all of us who are on the continent want to see a day that we development money, all of that is a thing of the past and that we rise and fall by our own hands. At least that's that, that's my hope, you know, that Africa comes to that day and that we we own and drive our own destiny. And knowing that that is entirely possible, hearing stories like that makes me sure that that's entirely possible. Um, you know, so when I hear those stories, it just makes me think about there will come a time, you know, five years from now, 10 years from now, where stories of this period will be told, you know, and, and people will reflect on what happened. And, and of course, there will be a time to rebuild. But I'm also curious, you know, when you think about the lessons and the stories of Sudan that you want to see passed on carried on, you know, you want to see them immortalized and canonized and make sure that they are told. What are the stories that you want to make sure that people know about Sudan? Um, I think that um, Sudanese people are very resilient uh, people. Um, You know, part of the reason why we are where we are right now is because the people would not accept just the the status quo, you know, being ruled by um, military leadership, you know, that that was the case of 
the overthrow of the of the Bashir regime in 2021 I mean, 2019 um, and you know the period during the um, transitional government uh, the promises uh, the, the, the will of the people, the resiliency of the people, um, specifically the youth, um, you know, Sudan, like most African countries right now is, you know, overwhelmingly young uh, and under 30. Um, so the youth who are the future and they're going to be the ones who, you know, kind of pick up the pieces and, and run with it are so resilient and so steadfast um, in their wants uh, and they will not take no for an answer. So they will continue to fight even to what you see now until they get the proper civilian led government um, that is representative of them and their hopes and dreams. Um, and I think that is the real kind of big takeaway with all of this. Mm. So I have dear friends who are Sudanese, and one of the things that they've taught me is that, you know, Sudanese culture is also a culture of gratitude, um, that there's this, you know, yes, this is the sky is falling, but, you know, thanks be to God, we have the grass, you know, the grass remains, and, and we, sit, we stand here together. And so I do want to close this conversation, both with a deep a gratitude and appreciation for you taking the time out of a time which I know is emotionally taxing and spiritually taxing for anyone who cares about that place, much less it being home. Um, but also to ask you what I ask every guest, which is what is bringing you joy today? I think that is just a reflection of both my appreciation for you, but also knowing that that is a part of Sudanese culture to be able to express gratitude, even in times of difficulty. So I would love to hear that, you know, even in this moment, um, you know, what is bringing you joy today? Yeah, no, um, I think, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, faith or family or just culture, um, yeah, the Sudanese people, all of them, the diaspora and within are very kind of rooted in, in gratitude. I've seen some videos right now of um, a, a few institutions that just got powered back on and they're already saying, you know, Alhamdulillah, thank you. Um, and, the, you know, the glass is always uh, half uh, full, even if it's a quarter full, if it's a tenth full, they're focused on the fact that there's water on there. Um, so I think with that um, kind of attitude, there's always hope, uh, you know, for, for not only a brighter future, but for, because um, at, at a certain point, hope is really kind of all you have. Um, and in today's uh, current climate, literally that's it because none of the world is really helping. Um, so to know that people have the right mindset, similar to a cancer uh, patient who they're telling you the odds are against you, but the right attitude can take you very far in your treatment. Uh, journey, that's really kind of how it is for the Sudanese people. The right mindset and attitude and faith and belief is in place. Um, and even though the odds may look like they're stacked against uh, Sudan, um, Sudan will definitely prosper um, and win, uh, mm. win their journey uh, back to healing properly. Thank you for so much, so much for that. I think it's just, you've, you've brought us so much uh, insight, I think, that helps us sit in this moment with a bit of more hope, which is what we, which we, what we need. We're not there. We're not on the ground. We're not able to do as much as we'd like. Um, we will share in the show notes today ways that people can support and connect to the Sudanese community and, and support. 
but you have also given us a way to support, which I think is to, to go forward with hope and an appreciation for the strength and the resilience of the Sudanese people and the culture. So thank you for coming on and, and talking to us today. I'm so grateful. Yeah, no, thank you for having me. And I just want to add the uh, hope is definitely what's there, but, you know, uh, a lot of help, um, whether, you know, international, regional, um, and domestic is going to be needed to, uh, to rebuild Sudan to, to hopefully even better than it was um, when all these recent events kicked off. And you know, you, you, you mentioned that and it's, it'd be only fair for me to say, is there anything that you want to add that I didn't ask you today? Anything you want to say or that you feel like it's an important part of this conversation, including ways that you would like to see people supporting? Yeah, I, I would just like to say that, you know, um, as you know, we're part of, we're all part of the same 24 hours news cycle, right? So as Sudan kind of uh, coverage dissipates away from uh, the main headlines. Uh, I'm here, like I said, in Qatar, where it's covered in Al Jazeera um, all the time. But, you know, in other parts of the world, when it is uh, dissipates, just know that there are people who are, you know, still struggling. And again, outside of Khartoum, um, you know, uh, you can follow um, one of the main hashtags. I think keep eyes on Sudan is one of the more influential and kind of positive um, ways to keep updated with what's happening in Sudan and all of Sudan. So we're talking about Darfur, we're talking about uh, Eastern Sudan, we're talking about the Nuba Mountains, uh, we're talking about all of Sudan. And I think that's what's really what's important. So if you see Khartoum starting to be rebuilt and people moving back in, it doesn't necessarily mean that all is well. Um, we have to keep eyes on Sudan. And by keeping eyes on Sudan, it means keeping eyes on all of Sudan. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I like, I love how you ended that, keeping eyes on all of Sudan. Um, thank you so much, Echef. I'm so grateful for your time, your thoughts, and just your generosity of spirit. Thank you. Uh, absolutely. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Once again, my deep, deep appreciation to Echef, to Mohammed, to Rega for having the courage and taking the time to talk to me. It is not lost on me that it cost you something to, to say what you needed to say today. And I'm just so grateful that you spent time with us. Listeners, if you'd like to hear more about stories from the horn, about these moments, about Ethiopia, the conflict there. I mean, like I said at my opening, I'm trying to find ways to have these conversations in ways that are meaningful and, and authentic. And so I'd love to hear from you. What has Sudan meant to you in this moment? What does Ethiopia mean to you in this moment? What does Kenya mean to you in this moment? How do you hold pace for both the justice that you want for your country and the joy and pride that you have in calling it home? How do you do that? Because honestly, it's not easy. So send us a message, DM us on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram. We'd love to hear you at Salam and Hello. And as always, my email is lily at salamandhello.com. And until we meet again, just know that our hearts and our prayers remain with all of our people across all of these borders because this place is home. And I'm so grateful to share it with each and every one of you. So peace, be well, and we'll see you next week.